I will be reading from Acts 1, 1 through 5. Acts 1, 1 through 5. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John the Baptist with wa- excuse me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts. You may be seated. I know you've used the metaphor, just as I have, many times when we say that, uh, you know, we're referring to some change in your life of some kind. There's, there's a new era, so we say that we are entering a new chapter in our lives, and in this case, we're doing something even more. We're not just entering a new chapter. We're entering a new book after spending a considerable amount of time in the Gospel of Mark. We're now transitioning. This is the first sermon as we start our way to um, exegetically look at what it is that the book of Mark has to teach. And Acts really is the perfect follow-up to teaching any, uh, preaching through any gospel. And part of the reason is, you may be familiar with the saying, I I, I bet many of you have heard it, that um, when you think about the Old Testament and the New Testament, that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and that the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And so what is going on there in that saying, if you've never heard it before, you're probably sitting there chewing on a little bit, but what is intended by that saying is that everything that's going on in the Old Testament, all of the accounts that are in there and the prophecies, the narratives, the poetry, all of the different aspects of the Old Testament are always working forward. They're always pointing forward to what takes place with Christ. It is just actually, as Pastor Nick talked about um, in, uh, in his reference earlier in Mark chapter 1, it is all about this idea of fulfilling a particular mission in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is always pointing forward to when it is that guy is going to show up and those things are actually going to happen. And then you finally get to the Gospels, And there he is. He appears on the scene. All of those things actually do take place. They're all pointing forward to the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have prophecies. You have types. You have shadows. You have echoes. All of those things are just different terms uh, for categorizing ways that the Old Testament is always pushing forward, that progression toward Jesus Christ. And that's what we spent our time looking at as we made our way through the gospel of Mark. Okay, well, here it is. This is the life of Jesus. All of those things have been pointing forward to Jesus, and we got there, and he did it, and he died, and he rose again, all to the glory of God. But it begs a question. Now what? 
That's the question. So, okay, so all of those things happened. You have the fat part of the Bible, the 39 books that are all talking about this guy that's going to come and what it is he's going to accomplish. And we go through the entire gospel and we see there he is and that he did accomplish it. So now what? And the answer to that now what is the book of Acts. And the, the, the book of Acts, if you uh, look in your Bible, I, I'm guessing that yours is like mine, is right at uh, the top there. It actually, you know, we use, we just say Acts, you know, in uh, kind of shorthand. But I'm guessing your Bible reads like mine, which actually says the Acts of the Apostles, which is true. And in fact, the earliest manuscripts that, uh, that we possess of the, uh, the book of Acts actually contain that title that says the Acts of the Apostles. But we have to always keep in mind that even though it's true that it's the Acts of the Apostles, that it's the Apostles that are working on behalf of Jesus. And so it's the Acts of Jesus. He's continuing to carry out a particular mission, but he's doing that in a particular and in a special way through these group of guys, through these Apostles, and it's being documented in this um, in, in this particular book. And so they are named there, and appropriately, appropriately so, that it's the Acts of the Apostles, but we always have to keep in mind that really the focus here in what's going to take place in this book and everything that we see unfold in the book of Acts is actually the Acts of our Savior that's being carried out through the Apostles. Now, this is a, uh, also a perfect follow-up to a gospel um, a, a gospel examination. First of all, at just kind of that real um, straightforward level, is that it is a linear historical chronological um, sequel. It's the next thing that happens after uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, uh, these verses that we're looking at here today actually name some of these timing things. So what's taking place is that Luke is creating this seam chronologically between what took place in Jesus's life and what the apostles are about to do. And that's what's happening in the very introductory verses of the book of Acts is he's knitting those things together to say, okay, all of this is what took place in the life of Jesus, but now what? Well, the now what is that there is something more about Jesus' mission that needs to take place, and it continues to be about fulfillment. So Jesus came, and he fulfilled all of these things, but that wasn't the end. We don't just get to Acts. Acts isn't just an epilogue. It isn't like, okay, here's the whole story that points forward to Christ, and then we get to the Gospels, and then that's pretty much the end, and then we have things like the Acts and the Epistles, like it's some sort of an appendix or an epilogue at the end of the Bible that just kind of talks about the real thing that happened in the Gospels. Everything that pointed forward to Christ was for a purpose to accomplish a particular mission. In other words, there was fulfillment that was taking place in the life of Christ, but even in the life and then subsequent death and then subsequent resurrection of Jesus Christ, there continues to be fulfillment of what it is that's supposed to take place, and that is Jesus' ongoing mission. Jesus' fulfillment did not end at the resurrection. I don't know if you guys remember, I used the term a number of times much earlier in um, the study of Mark, but I talked about 
uh, Mark and the, the whole gospel message basically being a new exodus. And so you have the original exodus in which there was essentially a, a family, a group of people that through the experience of the exodus become a nation. And now what we have is we have a nation, we have the Jewish people, we have the Israelites that in this new exodus become the church. And so these are the seedlings. That's what's taking place in Acts. As Jesus goes through all this, it doesn't end at the resurrection. The resurrection sets up now that new exodus, that new change, that new outcome on the other side of the resurrection, which is the church. So if you can picture that original exodus and all of the stuff, the craziness, the unbelievable episode that takes place with the exodus, and then you're standing there, you're, you know, you're one of the, the, uh, the, the family members that just kind of turned into now a nation. You probably don't even realize you're a nation now. And you're standing on the bank, and those guys just got washed away, and this amazing thing happened. That's, that's like where we are right here, but in Jesus' life. All of this stuff happened. They're in the, the apostles are in the aftermath of this amazing thing of, wait a minute, Jesus died, and what are we going to do? And then we looked last time at the end of Mark, and the women, and they're running, and uh, what do you do with this message? And yet now, here we are, fast forward in time to the apostles who are sitting here going, okay, now this, this amazing thing has happened. God has executed this amazing plan. What is it that we are going to do about it? So what we're looking at here in these first five verses is we're looking at this foundation, or actually the entirety of the book of Acts, is we're looking at this foundation that's being laid of the ongoing fulfillment of Jesus' mission. And we're going to do that by looking at it in three different ways, kind of uh, as it relates specifically to these apostles right here at this particular time. They're going to look at the uh, fulfillment as it relates to their personal past, fulfillment as it relates to their future, and then we're actually going to end with fulfillment as it relates to their present. Now, what we see right here in the very first verse of Acts, in the first book, it re- so I'm just reading the first verse here. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So right away, we have uh, given to us three characters are included right off the bat. So we've got this, uh, this cat, Theophilus. We have Luke, who is the author. He's talking about himself. In the first book, O Theophilus, I, that's Luke, have dealt with all that Jesus, so we also have Jesus, began to do and teach. There's relatively minimal, uh, minimal information about Theophilus, who Theophilus is, uh, the, the fact that there's very little information certainly doesn't keep people from making lots of um, speculations and guesses about who he is and what he means and, um, you know, is it even a one individual person and all that. Um, and so I don't think it's particularly important to really nail down exactly who it is, but this is what we know, is that Theophilus, whoever he is, is Luke, the author's benefactor. He's the money man. So he has commissioned Luke to do this thing, and he is bankrolling the, the entire endeavor. And this is what we know about Luke through uh, other portions of scripture. Luke was an educated guy. Luke was a physician. We know that he was a companion of 
<clears throat> he was a companion of Peter, and in particular, he was a companion of Paul. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in, so, you know, 2 Timothy is, is Paul's final letter. It's the last thing that he writes. He's writing it to Timothy. This is the last thing that he authors before he dies. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he expresses that Luke is his sole companion. He actually says, I, basically, I've been left all alone. I've got nobody left. Well, except Luke. And so that gives you some idea of the relationship that Luke has in particular to his buddy Paul. Now, other things of note about Luke is that he is a Gentile. Now, here's a little bit of trivia if you want to win your next little Bible trivia thing. Or um, I know you guys got a road trip. Well, you're all here. So if you have somebody else in your car that's not here, here's something to kind of throw out there. This is what's amazing is, uh, you know, who is the only uh, non-Jew author of the New Testament? And the answer to the question is Luke. Luke is actually a Gentile. And then you add to that, this is where it gets even more interesting, is the fact that uh, Luke is, has authored more of the New Testament than anyone else. If you ask that question, who's authored uh, the, the majority of uh, the New Testament, people, of course, want to say Paul because of the number of books. But actually, as far as content, number of words, it's Luke between his gospel and then subsequently uh, the book of Acts. So, uh, very fascinating. Luke is, um, Luke is a Gentile. He's educated. He's a physician. We know he's an author, and he's, a, he's an historian. And this is another thing that we have to make sure that we, or, or it's helpful for us to wrap our minds around as we begin this book, is that, you know, Pastor Nick has mentioned it, and I know PJ, when he's uh, preached in Daniel, we, we've spoken frequently about the Hebrew way of storytelling and the circular and all of those kinds of things, the revisiting, and that that isn't really the way we do things. We get a little bit of a reprieve because... That's not Luke. The way that we tend to think, the more chronological way of doing things, that's actually more of a Greek way of doing things. That's even why the, uh, the Greek New Testament, which is um, the order of books that we have, is not like the original Hebrew canon, and because it's more chronologically laid out. Well, Luke isn't Jewish. Luke is a Gentile. So here we have, he's getting bankrolled by this guy Theophilus to go out and to write it down. He's like, I want you to document everything that's going on. And so he authors the gospel of uh, Luke, and then he continues after that to go on to author this book of Acts. So just to keep in mind the kind of the framework of the timeline too, so Jesus in his life, so at approximately AD 30, Jesus dies and is resurrected and all of those things happen. So a lot of the things that Luke is writing about here would have taken place close to A.D. 30. But he actually authors this about, the, uh, of course there's um, differing positions, but uh, it, it would appear that he's authoring this right around A.D. 60 to 70. So Jerusalem falls in 70, it's prior to Jerusalem falling, and you have Luke now approximately 40 years later writing what he has been investigating. And this is how it happens. He is a tight companion with Paul there in Jerusalem. Paul gets arrested. 
he's going to be, remember the whole account where there are some people dedicated to killing him and then the information gets to uh, the governor and the governor's like, no, we got to protect him and they ship him out and then he's going to head to Rome. But along his path, he stops at Caesarea and stays there for two years. Well, during those two years that Paul, he's authoring letters, he's on house arrest, his companion Luke is right there, sets up residence, and then goes about his investigation that ends up leading to Luke and Acts. And Caesarea, if you were to look at it on a map, is on the right, it's fairly close to the border of Judah, Judea, and Galilee. So, what that means is, Jesus had all his ministry in Galilee, he had his journey down to Jerusalem in Judea, and everything that took place there. Luke is ideally situated, physically, geographically. He's there because of God's providence. His buddy Paul is in prison, so he's not going anywhere. He's now received, he's got a benefactor that says, I want you to investigate this. You've got a Gentile historian, educated guy, who then begins to travel that whole area and to interview people. And what ends up happening and what we're going to see as we proceed through the book of Acts is he provides firsthand accounts of a number of things that happen. The only way you provide firsthand accounts is by interviewing those particular people. So we have every reason to believe that Luke actually talked to directly John Mark. In other words, the Mark we just finished studying. John Mark's mom, the Apostle Philip, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John, Peter's half-brother James, and even Mary in her old age. It is possible, in fact, it may even be likely that Luke interviewed face-to-face Mary, and then the account that he gives, these first-hand accounts, the reason they're first-hand is because he actually talked to these people. So we see God's providence in all of these things happening. And so we are able to say, well, man, this isn't just a collection of facts. This isn't just a, a Wikipedia for, you know, a Biblepedia kind of thing so that we can get our uh, information together and, and make a nice little timeline. We see that God commissioned an educated Gentile to accompany Peter and Paul and to conduct research to accurately document the fruit that was just budding after the resurrection of Jesus because God is not just a God of the, of the ends. Our God is a God of the means. And he picked out Luke. That's, that's his guy. And how interesting, by the way, that here we have this whole thing that's taking place of this transition between this whole new exodus idea of transitioning from the nation of Israel to all nations. And so the guy that he picks is Gentile. I mean, it's exquisite. You know, it, it, the, the, the irony and how well all of this fits together is great. And so Luke is going to document this ongoing mission as it takes place. So we see that in uh, verse 1, we have this progression then. I mentioned, I kind of said, you know, uh, Luke is, has got this glue. He's creating this seam, and you see it right there in uh, the first three verses. In the first, he mentions back the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So that's the gospel that he authored. That's what I wrote in the first book, was the gospel of Luke, everything that Jesus began to do and teach. And so those gospel accounts, and maybe you'll remember uh, when, when I was going through Mark, the, the frequent theme or a frequent phrase that Jesus would say is the, time is, the kingdom is at hand, the time is fulfilled. 
And so that's what we're seeing again now is that fruit of that time, um, the, the kingdom is at hand and the time being fulfilled. And now you think about the fact, if, if, if you kind of start connecting things and you go, okay, well, close to the end of the gospel, if you'll recall back in Mark 14, 50, remember Jesus was going to the Garden of Gethsemane, he's pouring his heart out before the Father, and his apostles are just falling asleep and everything, and then Judas and the crew all show up, and do you remember what they all did, all the apostles? These guys that we're about to read, the, the, the acts of the apostles, you remember what they all did? Boop, skedaddle. In Mark 14, 50, it says, and they all left him and fled. And so it was Jesus exclusively. This is Jesus's mission. And through all that Luke taught um, in in all that Jesus um, did and taught, he became the chief cornerstone of this church that we're going to look at over time. But now in this book, Jesus, in his mission, is adding to the foundation that has been established through him as the cornerstone. And in verses 1 through 3, we see how uh, Luke is connecting this kind of already and not yet type of thing. In fact, we even see in verse 3 down here where he gives us kind of a time frame. It says that even after he's resurrected and before he ascends to be with the Father, what is it he's speaking about? Look right there, verse 3. So we have our time frame. He presented himself to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. So this is the 40 days after Jesus was resurrected. And what did he spend his time talking about? He spent his time talking about the kingdom of God. So this whole thing, this whole mission that Jesus is on has to do with the kingdom of God. So the Old Testament's pointing forward. There's this progressive nature. It gets to Jesus in whom it's all fulfilled so that he is now the cornerstone of the church that is going to be built. And that church has to do with expanding the kingdom of God. Now, this is what I want to do is actually jump past verse 4. And I want you to take a peek. Let's take a peek together, actually at verse 5. So after now we've looked at, as far as the, the apostles' perspective, that fulfillment, they're able to look backward and see that fulfillment in their past during the time that they personally were walking with Jesus. They were probably swapping stories and trying to make sense of things, and they're looking past and seeing that fulfillment in Christ. But when we go to verse 5, we see that there is a future fulfillment of some variety that's going to take place. In verse 5, Uh, uh, these are Jesus's words for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized. This is future. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So the apostles are hearing directly from their risen savior in his resurrected state, a particular promise to them that they are going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And we know that, um, this promise isn't just like a, uh, a supplement to be an apostle. It's like, oh, hey, you've been, you've been an apostle. I got something extra for you. This isn't a bonus for being faithful. We already know they actually weren't that great at even being faithful. They're the ones that all fled. And yet Jesus is promising them the gift of the Holy Spirit that is going to come. And the reason that he's doing that is because we know from our perspective that it has cosmic implications, right? The very fact that the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out, starting with these apostles, has these enormous implications. 
think for just a second and we're just going to pan all the way out to uh, all of the historical narrative and just remember that prior to the fall, there was an unstained relationship between Adam and Eve and their father, right? Before the fall, they're able to cool the evening. They're able to meet with their God uh, in nakedness with no shame whatsoever. They have this pure relationship with him. Enter the fall, enter death. Fast forward then a little bit to widespread wickedness in Genesis 6. God decides that he is going to flood the earth. He's basically going to do a big reboot because of, um, because of the widespread wickedness. That didn't take either. Noah sinned. The people sinned. There was failure there. God then abandons that as well. And what does he do? He says, I'm going to start from scratch. I'm going to go call my, I'm going to create my own nation. He abandons the nations. He gives them up. Between Genesis 10 and also uh, Deuteronomy 32, we know that, that God, God washes his hands, in a, in a sense, of them and says, I'm going to start from scratch. I'm going to go grab this one guy and just create my own nation. And in fact, um, he does create from Adam this nation, this new people. And in Deuteronomy 32, those people is God's allotted portion. That's what it's called, God's allotted portion. And while the Jews then, over time, are in fact God's portion, we know in in reality that we serve a sovereign God, and so all nations are truly his. And so by the time you enter Christ, what's taking place is that Jesus is reclaiming all the nations. Because in that fall, in some sense, this was the devil's world, a post-fall world a post-fall and pre-Christ world has itself in a particular way in the grip of the evil one. He is the strong man. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is the one that used evil rulers to kill Jesus. He went all in to take Jesus down, to, to go, okay, this is my shot, and I'm taking my shot. And that's what he did with Christ. And we all know the end of that story. He lost. And now Jesus, who gained victory over death, is beginning the business of reclaiming what is his. What was God's before the fall, entirely and completely and in an unstained way, Jesus now, in this mission of expanding the kingdom, has now initiated this new phase through the church of reclaiming what is his. Israel as a chosen nation, Jerusalem as its capital city, the temple as the particular place where God's glory dwelled, all of those things are changing. We know that the, the, uh, the curtain was torn in two. The, the disciples have now gathered in Jerusalem, and from that spot, this is essentially going to be their base of operations to begin with, to go out into the world to reclaim what is him, to, to reclaim what is his, to reclaim all of the nations. And at this point, and they're going to need the Holy Spirit to do that, but these guys do not know all of this. You know this because of God's word, but at this particular time, they do not know this. What do they have? What do they have? Let me put it this way. If you have this version of the Bible, they have some red letters, right? They have a promise 
from Jesus. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. They have a promise and they have a command. We know they're going to be launched into the world to take the gospel to all four corners, to be part of establishing and part of being the foundation of the church itself, to be instruments for Jesus Christ in the accomplishment of his mission of expanding the kingdom. But they don't know all that stuff. What they know is they have a promise and they have a command. So if, they, if we know it's very clear that their promise is that they're going, in a few days, they're going to receive the Holy Spirit, then what we see lastly going back to verse 4, is the command. So we saw that they're able to reflect on the past fulfillment. They know that there's some version that they're not entirely sure of, of a future fulfillment that's going to take place when this Holy Spirit comes. But in the meantime, they have received a command. The command is right here in verse 4. And while staying with them, so this is talking about Jesus with them in Jerusalem, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. So we know, what the, we know what the promise is, but the command here has two little parts here. He ordered them not to depart and to wait. Think about this. We just kind of pictured the, the, those beginning times. The, the garden, the fall, all of those things. And you figure from Genesis 3, we have a God. I mean, certainly prior to that. But it, it, starting in Genesis 3, 15, God makes a particular promise that he intricately carries out all of the details through all of the stories and the prophecies and the narrative of the Old Testament that point forward to what Christ is going to accomplish in the New Testament. He's doing all of that and he's made it possible so that he can now reclaim all the nations, all of these moving parts in some amazing way that could only happen the way that he did it. And now his command to these apostles is to stay and to wait. Stay and wait. If you believe in a God that is sovereign, if you believe in a God that is in control of all of creation, if you believe in a God that controls all of history, that can manip manipulate time like a yo-yo, then you know for a fact that you worship a God that is not idle. You worship a God that is not dilly-dallying. You know that you're worshiping a God that is not overwhelmed by details, that's not distracted by other responsibilities. I'll get to that when I have time. That's not the God that we serve. You have no trouble believing that whatsoever. But our God's our God is not only sovereign over the plan. He is not only a perfect planner. Our God is also sovereign over the timing of the plan. Amen. The Bible doesn't reveal to us every detail of what's going on. It gives us everything that God wants us to know, but it doesn't give us every conceivable detail. I don't know why these particular words were spoken to these guys on a Thursday at 2.48 p.m. That's completely hypothetical, by the way. All right, I made that up. What I'm saying is that we don't know. There's stuff we don't know. There are things that we don't know. But God has this whole thing orchestrated at exactly the right time, which means that he has a plan for them to sit and to wait. And we don't even know all of the reasons, maybe not even some of the reasons, that there is a delay between 
when he has spent 40 days with them talking about the kingdom of God and what it is that they're about to go do. We're familiar with the gospel message and what took place all the way up to this point. We're probably even pretty familiar with a lot of the things that take place in the apostles' lives, the acts of the apostles, if you will, later, but here they are. But they're not in the lurch. They're not forgotten. They're not wasting time. They're not biding time. This is what we know, is that God made them a promise that he's, of course, going to fulfill, and he has given them a command. He has given them an order to stay and wait. God is not a waster of time. And here's the trouble that we get ourselves into, is that we want to look at our lives in our timeline. And in fact, I would say, as an example, a, a, a common way that the God-hater or the, the doubter, the unbeliever, exercises this is when that doubter says, well, I'll tell you why I'm not going to believe in God. I'll tell you right now why I'm not going to go to your church. It's because bad things happen to good people. That's why. It's not fair. It's not fair at all. And I am not going to go worship a God that's not fair. In fact, let me tell you something. If there is a God, when I get there, he's got some, answer, he's got some answering to do to me. I'm, I'm guessing that nearly every one of you have heard some kind of argument like that. I've heard that sentiment expressed. I don't believe in God. He's not fair. If there is a God, then he's mean and he's not fair. And I would say this. Maybe you have not thought about this perspective before as it relates to time and to timelines. This logic doesn't hold. It only works if there is no God. This is what I mean. If there is no God, then things that are these wild, um, wildly arbitrary and unfair, legitimately unfair things, evil things, if you will, if there's no God, if we can still call it evil, things that take place, if that's all that there is, then that is absolutely true. It, it, it's unfair. It doesn't make any sense because we don't see the justice happen to that person. That person is not being held accountable. The guy who does the horrible things, those horrible crimes, all the big names that we want to point at, if there's no God, then that makes sense that it's unfair because they don't receive judgment. But if there is a God, then what we have to do is look at the timeline from God's perspective, which means this. No one is getting away with anything. There's no, you can find people that are horribly evil, openly rebellious, that hate God from the very depths of their soul and will sing about it all day long and seem to prosper in this world. You have no trouble identifying who those people are. And it can be very difficult to look at that and say, what? How is this happening? The reason that we ask these questions is because we are looking with blinders with our own timeline. God is operating on a different level. He is operating on a sovereign level with a sovereign timeline. The only way that someone can say that's not fair is by putting themselves at the center. 
It's only not fair because you have decided it's not fair because you do not see the justice that is going to take place. Those folks that say, I don't want your God because your God isn't fair, they want that because they want justice now, but only to everyone else. Those same people don't want now justice for them. They don't want their lies judged right now, their unfaithfulness exposed right now, their cheating, their stealing, their, their uh, selfishness. They don't want those exposed right now. Nobody wants that right now. We want mercy right now. But that guy I absolutely want judged. And you realize that this whole, uh, that, that, that that's not fair guy is what he's doing is he's taking God off the throne and putting himself right in the throne. He's saying, I want judgment for these people in this particular timing. This is the way I would like to see it play out. And if it does not play out that way, then it's not fair. But when we look at God's timing, we know that that's not how it works. Instead, that argument that that same that's not fair guy makes is the same argument that has taken place since the garden. That's exactly what the evil one wanted to do was to usurp God. And then how did he go about it? By, by contacting Adam and Eve and telling them the same thing. Remember what Satan said to Eve. When you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. So what the unbeliever is saying is if I can't be God, there is no God. Those are the only two options. Because when a person gets a clear view or is willing to look at God's timeline, in other words, they see that there is going to be an ultimate judgment, that there is going to be a, a, uh, an accounting for every word, for every deed, whether good or bad, what is the only reaction that you can have to that? Woe is me. Woe is me. That's the only legitimate response that you can have. When you realize that there is a true future judgment, then the whole concept of pointing your finger at somebody else's sin is not only ridiculous, it's embarrassing because of the mountain of sin that's, that's stacked up on each one of us. And the only solution to any of that is repentance and faith. There is no such thing as that that's not fair the only thing that's not fair is that we would have an opportunity to gain the love of a sovereign God through the sacrifice of his son. That's what's not fair. But praise God, we can go to him in repentance and faith and receive forgiveness. And I would tell you also, Christian, I know you need it just like I need it. You must have a frequent reminder of the timeline of our God our God prescribes both the time and the tempo. You are in exactly the time of history that he wants you to be in. You are living the life at the tempo. I have to hear this, by the way. 
you are living the life at the temple that God has given to you, which, by the way, might be how in the world am I going to keep up with, my, with, my, with, with everything in front of me. I, I don't see how it's even possible. And you might be at the other end of the spectrum, which is I have absolutely nothing happening in my entire life. How is this possible? God is in control of both. If you think about it, the apostles themselves, at, at this time, when this, you know, what, what it is that Luke is writing about, the apostles have a particular perspective about their past and the connection to the fulfillment. They can look at that time that they were physically walking right there with Jesus. They can picture the Garden of Gethsemane and the temple and all his teachings and him silencing the, the, the wind and the waves and raising people from the dead and giving uh, the blind back their sight. They can look back and start to associate things, and they have their own personal, particular perspective of their past and how Christ was fulfilling those things. And we even know that based on this promise that comes in verse 5, from this promise from Jesus that they have their own limited perspective of what it is that's going to happen in the future. Like, wow, wow, Jesus promised us that in a few days we're going to have this Holy Spirit. Boy, I don't know what all that's going to contain, but I know that Jesus has promised us that. Therefore, there's going to be some kind of fulfillment. There is something in store. We don't know exactly what all that contains, but boy, is it going to be good. Jesus promised it to us. But right here and right now, they are told, stay and wait. So I would remind you, you have a particular perspective about the past. Now, we have the benefit of, not, of having more past historically. So we have all of the past that the apostles had. But we even have that past perspective of seeing the fulfillment that took place in all of the gospels and in what the apostles really had failed to do to that point, and what's going on in their lives. We already know what's going to happen in a few days. We can, we can read ahead. They couldn't read ahead at that time. We can read ahead at what it is that's going to take place in some form of a future fulfillment. But I would suggest to you, are there promises in here for you as a believer that you don't really fully understand what all it's going to contain? Aren't there promises in here that You're going to be with him and words like an eternal weight of glory and in his presence and glorified and all of these words that we don't really know exactly what all is going to happen until Jesus returns to consummate his kingdom. This means that right now it is entirely possible that in your life, Jesus, your God, is telling you to sit and wait, to stay and wait. You may feel like you're not getting any movement. You're not getting any traction. You don't feel like there's purpose to what you're doing. You may not visibly see any fruit from being faithful to God. You only see that when you're looking at it through your own lens and your own blinders of your own timeline. We serve a God that is over a much larger timeline that ends both with judgment, but judgment that we will not bear because we are covered by the blood of the Lamb. We have an eternal weight of glory waiting for us. We need to make sure that we're not getting ourselves wrapped around the axle 
about making sure that we see our own fruitfulness, that we see our own productivity, that we see our own rewards, whatever those are going to be. Think about Noah. The, the, the guy preached to people for a hundred years, only for all of them, other than some of his family members, to be wiped out in a flood. Or Jeremiah, who spent 40 years preaching to a people, and God told him from the time that he called him, he told him, hey, Jeremiah, you're going to do this. No one's going to listen. He told him that. No one is going to listen to you. Okay, go. Now, look, those things are absolutely true. And Jeremiah, however it is that God has worked out the rewards and the blessing that he is going to receive for his faithfulness, those same truths apply to you today. Be faithful in whatever it is that he has called you to do. And if that includes stay and wait, if that's what he is saying to you, then do it to the glory of God. Stay and wait to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful that you are a God that does not sit still. And just because we may be staying and waiting, that you are progressing in your great plan and your perfect timing to execute the mission of expanding the kingdom of God, one that you will consummate one day in the return of your son. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for the days of productivity. Thank you for the days of what appear to be stalling out to us, and yet you are doing something in your plan, in our own lives, and in your kingdom when we stay and wait. May we do so faithfully, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.